Okay, so you know those things, I've seen it a lot on TikTok recently, where it's like, would you punch your sibling for $5 million? I'm yes. just going to let you know right here and now, I'm going to, I would punch the shit out of you for $5 million, and I expect the same. Good, because I already said yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. Like, I'm not going to break your jaw. I don't even think I know how to throw a punch. I've never had to do it as an adult. Um, and I'm not one of those angry white guys who punches the... Sh- uh... Punching bag? No, what's the sheetrock? Plaster? It's a Wall? thing. It's a white people thing we do. We punch walls, I guess. <laughs> I don't do that. I don't want to hurt my hands. But, um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll deck you for $5 million. Do and I... then, I don't know, you can have an ice pack from my, like fridge that looks like it's cabinets because i'm that rich wait hold the phone you're punching me and getting five million dollars and not giving me part of it i'm not asking for half i'm asking for a million i'm not giving you a million i'll give you some (laughs) if i wasn't a part of this you wouldn't get any i I could punch sydney yeah and i'm pretty sure she's gonna want a million dollars we have three other siblings i could punch for five million (laughs) dollars you know i feel like i'm being the nice one saying you just have to give me a million our other siblings everyone i'll pay off your student loans oh okay well never mind okay deal yeah there (laughs) (laughs) is that better yes because i wouldn't ask you i wouldn't ask a million of you a couple hundred thousand yeah but so pay off my student loans and like maybe buy me a car. Yeah, deal. Yeah, that's reasonable. Punch away. Also, you <laughs> you do have to pay for any medical uh, treatment for damages that I may suffer if you're gonna punch me in the face. I am a weak little gay man. Um, <laughs> you're you're gonna be good. <laughs> you might have a bruise. I can't even promise that. Then we're totally fair. You know, you know, I'll pretty much do anything to get those student loans paid off. But hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And capitalism makes you do crazy things. I mean, it's why if if there was a large amount of prize money, the Hunger Games is starting to feel like more and more, I'm not going to say an option, but a realistic future. I don't like that. Um, I don't either. But um. 2021 sounds like the first Hunger Games is coming up because, y'all, what the fuck is happening? I don't like where you're going with this. You you should flip your mind to be more positive, Tyler. Stop thinking it's the end of the world. We all know it's coming. You mean I should take it back, flip it, and reverse it? Yes. Okay. Thanks, <laughs> Missy. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like an insult. Thanks, Missy. thanks for that missy anywho it's almost like a bitchy news reporter thanks missy thanks missy anyways (laughs) in sports this year it's canceled it's like when uh when gay people say honey like okay honey Honey. snow sweetie oh yeah honey whatever i think it's interesting that like in gay terminology it's like bitch no that's a compliment that's not, we don't, that's not a mean thing. Sweetie. Ooh. You did something Ooh, bad. Sugar. Ooh. Sugar. Sit down. Let me read you to filth. I don't like it. Don't ever call me either of those. No. I'm a nice person at my core. I know you are. 
And if y'all want to see just how nice of a person I am, but like in real time during a live, I don't know, Q&A, <laughs> we have that opportunity coming up October 1st at 8 p.m. Central, which if you are in London is 2 a.m. So sorry, European Patreoners. But if you're in Sydney, Australia, it's 11 a.m. your time on October 2nd. So, you know, just take an early lunch break, I guess. But um, yeah, I don't know, some international times for y'all to to see. But for U.S. listeners, um, that's October 1st at 8 p.m. Central. Which I feel like I may have said 7 p.m. in the last episode. So sorry if I gave you guys the wrong information, but it is 8 p.m. Central. And again, make sure if you have questions or anything that you like want answered, definitely, I don't know. Give us them on Instagram, on any of our social medias. Email us to them. Email them to us. <laughs> you can email us to the questions at, I mean, I don't know how, but you can find JPEGs of us. Anyway, or you can respond to our post on Patreon, like leave it in the comments there. And while we're on the subject of Patreon, we have some amazing Blood and Wine family members to thank. I want to give a huge, huge shout out to Morgan Nelson, Katharina, Aaron Duffy, Bridget Harris, and Jax. Thank y'all so, so much for joining the Patreon family. We are so happy to have you and so excited to hear what y'all think of the murder minis and to see y'all in the Q&A if y'all can make it. Yes, welcome to the family, you guys. Thank you so much for all of your support. And most of y'all on Patreon probably already subscribe to us, but if you don't, for those on Patreon and those who aren't, be sure you've subscribed to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Google Play, all of them. Did you know that Amazon now has podcasts? We need to figure out how to get on there. Oh, Amazon, what are you? They're everything. But be sure that you've subscribed to our podcast. That way you will get alerts to all of our new episodes that come out on Tuesdays. All right, y'all. So have a little break there because my cats, Sebastian specifically, is making me lose my goddamn mind. <laughs> so any advice would be helpful. But he he gets these, um, these ticks, his new things. He gets like a new one a month. Uh, it started with... Um, just fucking with the trash can like my big kitchen trash can with the lid he learned that he could like just barely get the trash bag at the edge and then pull the entire thing out uh, then it started to jumping on top of my tall kitchen cabinets and i'm just terrified he's gonna fall to his death now it's opening my cabinets and hiding in them it's just what he likes to do and he doesn't uh stop the previous ones when he develops a new urge so he does all three of them (laughs) so for my cabinets that i have like cleaning stuff in like the bathroom and my kitchen i have now tied them shut (laughs) um i have a box in front of their cabinet i keep their food in because i don't want him getting in there and eating everything and being fat um i any advice help me do i seriously need to like childproof plus my apartment I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was thinking about the childproof cabinet things, which is ridiculous because it's a cat. (laughs) It's a cat. (laughs) And also, 
he's a cat. He can do more things than children can do. I don't think a two-year-old could hop the ten feet to on top <laughs> of my cabinets. And if they can, like, put them in gymnastics, they're going to go to the Olympics, and then you get some, like, parent coin. But, yeah, so, I don't know. I'm losing my mind, y'all. I'm I'm going to need to invest in some good concealer, because now every night in the middle of the night, I wake up to, like, da-da, da-da, of him, you know, opening and slamming the cabinet doors. You know what? I will never again take for granted the fact that Willow's tics change. Like, she'll get obsessed with one thing and do it over and over and over, and it's so annoying. But then she'll forget about it, and she'll move on to something else and it's different and she'll do that over and over and over i think that may just be a cat thing but uh the fact that i was about to say skippy it's not skippy it's sebastian the the fact that sebastian remembers all of the things that he's obsessed with and does them all means that he is probably ocd and he has to do them in an order it's actually a he has to count the cabinet there have to be like you know five bangs before he can jump in that makes sense but uh, yeah, I, I've i done all the things of like getting them different toys and the interactive like smart kid toys that, you know, when you have like a three-year-old that's like already to, ready to do math, but you're like, you're too smart. I don't know how to deal with this. And so you get them like, here's a Rubik's Cube or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you deal with smart kids. That's not how to <laughs> do with my cat. <laughs> I'm like about ready to put him in like a gifted and talented program so he can just get out of my hair. Sabs, you ready to skip a grade? I don't know what to do with you. You're going to college at 12. You just start boarding your cat because you're like, I can't handle him. It's like his daycare. Is that the kind of parent I'm going to be? Am I going to be a white wine Chardonnay sending my kids to boarding school, but I'm still a stay-at-home parent? No, I'm not going to let you. What if I want to? That sounds (laughs) lovely. Okay, also, if quarantine goes any longer, we're, that's happening. Straight up. <laughs> I mean, totally fair. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, a little little side note about my little cat terrors I have. Uh, cat terrors. <laughs> New Stephen King novel coming out 2021. Sequel to Pet Cemetery. Cat terrors. <laughs> I can I see it. it. Yeah, I can see it. Or a sequel to Cujo. It may be that one. Speaking <gasps> oh, crossover. of... Okay, this is really, really random, and then I'll let you get into the topic, but I got an email from Nextdoor, which I don't, like, really use that app, but I still have oh, it, so I get the emails. I do. <laughs> I want to get all the tea on my neighbors, and I live in a neighborhood that, like, my apartment complex is surrounded by, like, a housing community, so it's the exact kind that I want. I mean, it's people posting things about, like... Um, to the house on the corner with the blue garage, I really appreciate uh, that you're letting your kids be active and getting out at this time. Please keep the noise levels down past 8.30 p.m. And I'm like, mm, yes, bitch, tell <laughs> me. And then the person who lives their comments and is like, really appreciate your comment. Um, but I think what really should be done is your kids need to be a little more active. I've seen them in your yard, cat. And I'm like, mm, yes. <laughs> oh my god. Um, so I mean, yes, totally. I live by a neighborhood as well, so I also love seeing all the tea, but that's not what the post I was gonna tell you about actually was about. So there is apparently a rabid bat found about two blocks away from where I live. And um 
<laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Um. So that happened, and it was like the the animal shelter or whatever. Um. Or like the city of Dallas's animal, not control. control. It, it wasn't like the pound, but anyway. It's so animal control. Yeah, they were just like, "This is why you need to vac like." make sure your animals have their rabies shots and it was then it got really scary because it was like you know rabies is bad for humans if you've been bit by a bat in the recent weeks like you need to go to the doctor and then they were like oh and by the way (laughs) bat bites are so small that you can't really see them and they don't even bleed and i'm like oh shit (laughs) okay guess you just gotta pay attention to bats which i hope you would I mean, I'm just saying, if I was bit by a bat at all, I would at least go to the doctor. I don't know. I would call, I I might call the news. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm not going to go to the doctor, but the news, they're going to fucking hear about this. (laughs) And honestly, well, first off, I mean, yeah, going to the doctor in America costs money. Going to the news, someone's going to start like a GoFundMe for me. And two, I even live in Austin, which is has the world's largest urban bat colony, apparently. Oh, yeah. Oh, fuck no. Yeah, so so that happened. But also, I'm moving. And I know I told you guys that in the last episode. And Tyler says you don't care, but it's fine. I care. And <laughs> I move I mean, in. you're moving to the suburbs. You're just jealous. No, I'm not. <laughs> You're jealous of my awesome new apartment, though. A little bit. I am. But you're making it sound like you're like, guys, I'm moving to Manitoba. Like, (laughs) this big life change. Girl, you move to the suburbs. Guys, I'm moving to Paris. It's finally happening. I (sighs) wish. Okay. Get into the topic. Now I'm I'm sad. Because I can't move to Paris. I I can't even visit Paris right now. Wear your damn masks. Okay. Topic. Yes. Well, speaking of, you know, your new apartment, you're so excited. One thing you might want to do when you get there is check the walls. There might be bodies in them. (laughs) I mean, it's a new construction, so I hope not. But what better place to dispose of someone than a new construction? Just pop them in before they put the roof on. I mean, yeah, like that construction worker that randomly went missing in the walls. Mm -hmm. So our topic is bodies hidden in buildings. Uh, in the floors, in the walls, maybe air ducts. That would that'd be a bad place to hide a body because then you'd be like, "Oh, it's kind of chilly. I better turn on the AC." Oh my god, what is that? <laughs> like, what is that smell? And then they're found quickly. Um, but I don't know about your case, but as we'll learn in mine, the smell may not always uh raise as much of an alarm as you may think. I know, which is really horrifying. Yeah. So, yes. Bodies hidden in buildings, in uh, in nouns. Bodies hidden in nouns. People, places, things, and ideas. <laughs> Bodies <laughs> hidden in ideas. That one is like our Matrix episode. Um, we're not really sure how to do that, but, you know, it's bodies in time and space. I mean, I think the most fucked up one is bodies hidden in people, but okay. <laughs> But what are the things where, like, sometimes you end up with, like, part of your twin that is actually, like, a tumor that has, like, teeth and hair and stuff? I watch too much TV. A teratoma. There you go. I knew you would know what it's called. It's called a teratoma. See? There you go. Bodies hidden in bodies. But that's not murder. That's just horrifying. 
That's just medical. That's just kind of cool. I mean, but yes, horrifying. Don't eat your twins. That's our stance on this podcast. <laughs> Please. Hashtag try not to eat your twin. Anywho, okay. Hashtag don't eat your siblings. Um, you know, I, this episode, I think already we've gone off uh, so many rails. Yeah, um, I think that uh, just perfectly sums up why we need wine right now. So, Brittany, what wine are you drinking today? I'm really looking forward to the wine that I picked this time. It is, well, I guess I'm always looking forward to the wine I pick. I don't pick a wine that I'm not looking forward to. I mean, I would, well, I've done that a couple times <laughs> and ha- hadn't turned out well. Flashback to episode, <laughs> I, I don't know, whatever it was. I think 80-something when I spit out my wine and, like, <laughs> just uh, thankfully missed the iPad and the computer and, oh. I remember that one. Yeah, the only wine me. you could never actually drink. I know, because I could drink pretty much any wine, even if I don't like it. At least I thought I could. Okay, whatever. What were you saying? Your oh yeah, your wine. Sorry, I'm I'm having like horrible flashbacks now. Today I'll be drinking the 2018 Weights and Measures Syrah from Edna Valley, California. This is a ten dollar Trader Joe's wine, and It's made by one of Edna Valley's most highly rated producers. So, you know, we've talked about this before. This is a TJ's wine and they've got all those partnerships. So I don't really know who who did this, but it's one of the highly rated producers. So who did this? (laughs) Who did this? It does say bottled by Weights and Measures, Morgan Hill, California. So maybe I'm wrong and Weights and Measures is the highly rated producer. But hey, you know what? I don't know that. But what I do know is that this Syrah, it's full-bodied. It has flavors of ripe berry, layered spice, with just a hint of espresso and a nice lengthy finish. There are also oaky notes throughout from the barrels. And it's bold, tannic, dry, and has medium acidity. You will totally know immediately why I picked this up. Look how pretty this label is with like this kind of like stone marbled looking with the geometric lines and triangles. Yeah. And gold. I love it. It's so pretty. It's giving me like modern art deco vibes. A hundred percent. This is like an art deco bottle. So um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and pop it open and give this a try. Pop, pop, pop that thing. Pop-up video. I'm really old because I remember that. VH1's pop-up video. I know you don't. I was just telling you. It's VH1's pop-up video. It was the best show ever. You would watch the music video and all throughout, they would have little pop-ups that had facts. You know, this is back when VH1 and MTV had music videos. No, yeah, we get it. You were born in the 80s. Um, No, I remember the music videos with facts shows and stuff. Do you remember the... We don't really have a lot of channels um, or cable, but we do have the music stations uh, that are in the high numbers that you just like totally pop and it'll <laughs> play the song and then be like, did you know Rihanna was 16 when she, oh, that was a short, that was a silent pop. It was a silent pop. Sorry, my music video fact uh, <laughs> obstructed your pop, but yeah. Yes, I remember those. That's what my gym plays. That and Judge Judy. You know what? Those are solid things to listen to and watch while you're working out at the gym. But 
Look at how pretty. It's nice and dark. Oh. And smells like berries. A little bit of spiciness on the nose. There's, I'm not getting a lot. Honestly, I did just open it. It's aerating right now. But it smells like red wine. You know, I think that as people, we have a lot we can really learn from wine. For example, we all love light-bodied, medium-bodied, heavy-bodied. It doesn't matter. We love it all. We appreciate it for what it is. And we need to take that in for ourselves. And we also need just a little bit of time to open up, okay? Just give me some time. Listen, the only thing that matters is you don't want him to be a short finish. You want a long finish. Tyler, what wine did you pick for this episode? (laughs) (laughs) I picked the Castillo Saint-Simon Cabernet Sauvignon from Spain. And this wine is... (laughs) This one is one that I feel like is a rare happenstance on our podcast where I picked one that was quite a bit cheaper than yours. Because I feel like you go to Trader Joe's quite a bit and can take advantage of like, this bottle's $4. Well, this one, I got at HEB at our grocery store here, and it was three thirty-three. Oh my god, I'm scared. Show me the bottle. I mean, it looks totally like just a bottle of wine. Actually, it does. And I found this one review. It was from like a full-on wine blog this guy had, Stuart Banky. Um, and like many wine or recipe blogs, it was one of those that had like 19 paragraphs that, you know, you're reading a recipe for like blueberry pie. And they start telling you about this story. Their kids were in kindergarten. And I remember making the macaroni. And you're like, what is the recipe? Yes. But he wrote it like a novel, so I'm going to read it like an audiobook for your listening entertainment. The whole 19 paragraphs? Uh, No, two. Well, three. (laughs) I screwed off the top to this wine as soon as I got home from the store and got to work. The first thing that I detected in the sample that... Wow, these are run-on sentences. Stuart, dude. (laughs) Was that it was kind of musty and earthy. Almost like going into an old closet. There was just something in the smell that made me think of a house built in the 1910s whose guest room closet hadn't been opened up since 1953. Were there bodies in it? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I also picked out some blackberry in between the musk. The only thing that seemed to be right about this wine was the coloration. It looked pretty indistinguishable from a convenience store cabernet. I aerated the wine in the glass and took a sip. I expected to taste the carpet of that old house, I imagined, but I was happy. That didn't happen. (laughs) I got a very strong blackberry flavor up front that moved into being lightly acidic mid-taste. The finish was short and slightly soily. Soily as in, well, not dirty, but earthy. Rating? Eh. This was actually not too bad. I'm not going to go out and buy it again, but I wouldn't turn it away if someone was going to serve it to me. Stuart Bankley, 2003. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I like how uh, he considers opening wine and trying it going to work. My kind of guy. Honestly, yeah. (laughs) But just the imagery of this... (laughs) 
the old house built in the 1910s with a 70-year unopened guest room closet. I mean, I get that, but uh, I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> how that so well fits into our topic, because I didn't think about that. Um, but yeah, I'm about to drink Grandma's Attic Wine, so <laughs> it's a screw top. And let's see. Okay. Man, you always just do it all the way up to the rim. It's a small glass. <laughs> what am I smelling, Stuart? Tell me what I'm smelling. Blackberry and musk. Oh, I'm supposed to be smelling old closet. <laughs> Dead bodies. Definitely a hint of decom. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah, I smell like berry and shit. I get what he means in the, like, musty. You know how, like, when you uh, vacuum pack clothes, like, you're like, oh, these are my winter clothes. I'm going to put them in the plastic bag that you vacuum the air out of. But then, you know, three years later when you're like, oh, shit, that's where those are. <laughs> and you open them up and you're like, they smell old. That's what I'm getting from this. I actually never have used those uh, vacuum suck things, but you just made me not want to because I would forget about my clothes. I also only have like four sweaters. I live in Texas. So real. <laughs> I mean, it's not bad because um, I think a lot of wine sometimes has that little bit of like musty old, like you opened grandma's cedar chest and got the bottom blanket kind of smell. <laughs> so I'm not mad at it. Um, So far, I'm like three dollars this is totally smelling like a ten dollar bottle really smell only goes so far let's see what it tastes like yes so let's go ahead and cheers let's try these wines cheers cheers yeah i mean that's that's a fruit forward cab it's not bad how does it compare to like two buck chuck Eh, about the same but I'm honestly surprised it's not just one note, which is, I feel like what you get most of the time out of a really cheap wine is, it may be fine, but it's going to be a lot more one note. It might be a cab that you're like, yep, berries, and that's it. This one definitely has, I wouldn't call it oak, but a little more something. Probably what Stuart described as that, like, uh, soily or earthy to it i can see what he's talking about that's a solid wine it's not one i would renegate full-on to mold wine or sangria status but it would be a great wine to use if you're making like a sangria or a mold wine and needed cheap wine also fun fact i know we talked about it before but if you're making a sangria or a mold wine feel free to use the cheapest wine like i'm telling you get the like 18 person jug of Carla Rossi because the spices and stuff is where you're going to want the good flavors coming from. Like it'd be better to use gut barrel, whatever, whatever mama calls it. Rot gut, (laughs) rot rot gut, gut, rot gut, gut barrel (laughs) wine and like some good or fresh cinnamon than to use a decent wine and the cinnamon sticks that have been in your pantry for four years. You know, Spices expiring is something that you've taught me. I look all the time now. You'd be proud of me. I am. So, do you want to hear about my wine? Yeah. (laughs) This is a good wine. I'm in a little bit of a, like, thinking about it stage, though. 
Because, okay, so this is a straight up Syrah. It's been a long time since I've had one. Maybe. I could be lying. I mean, like a straight up only Syrah. One of my favorite wines that I have pretty often is a Cabernet Syrah blend. And you can really tell like what the cab adds to it, but that's not what I'm drinking. So back to this one. It really does have these ripe, almost tart berry flavors that you get right at the beginning. I taste the vanilla on the sides of my mouth. So in that like middle of the swallow, I'm not really getting all the layered spices and I'm definitely not getting this hint of espresso, but it does have a pretty lengthy finish and it absolutely is making my mouth salivate. Um, I think a lot of that is this very ripe berry that it has. It's not sweet. It's more tart with these ripe berries. It's getting better as it's breathing a little bit more. And this is a teeth stainer. Like, my glass, you can already see it on the sides of the glass. So, here we go. Well, we've got our wine. (laughs) We've talked about our topic. I have the giggles today. And so, I'm going to get into my case that's going to make me stop laughing. Oh joy. Okay. Tell me tell me about your case. What are what's your what are you doing? Where was your body hidden? Where did you hide the body, Brittany? The family wants to know. Tyler, you're actually really gonna recognize this one because I didn't realize it until after I'd done all my research and I was like, Yay, I'm good to go that this is one you did in a murder mini, but it's been like two years. So I think it's safe for me to do it in an episode. Oh, what murder mini was it? Like seven or something. Okay. Wow, that is a long time ago. Yeah. So I'm going to be talking about the murder of Annie Lay. The sources I used, an article on oxygen by Benjamin H. Smith, an article from the Yale Alumni Magazine by Carol Bass, and then an article from the Hartford Current by Elaine Griffin. Annie Lay was one of those students that was exceptional. She had a smile that could light up a room, which we know what that means. She was 24 years old, and she had been an academic star throughout her entire life, high school, college, and now she was earning her doctorate at Yale. She was born in San Jose, California in 1985. She grew up in a really big family that was very close. They were Vietnamese-American. She was the valedictorian of her graduating class, and she was also voted most likely to be the next Einstein. So she just, she was so highly intelligent. People loved her. Were you voted any, did you get any superlatives in high school? No, I don't, you know, I like to think we didn't do them, um, but maybe I was like most likely to not, I don't know, to get out of her wheelchair because, no, I was out. Most likely. Most likely to walk again. (laughs) most likely to not get perfect attendance just kidding so um no i i I didn't want to did you did you get a superlative no no i apparently was like fourth place with my friend rachel for like cutest couple that never happened which now that i think about it is like me kind of a fucked up creepy i mean i was gay so i'm like oh that makes sense but like how weird is it for, like, the people that are voted that that are friends and, like, or maybe one of them really likes the other and the other side shit? Like, superlatives are kind of fucked up and weird. But no, I graduated with 700 other people, so of course. I was a gay kid in Oklahoma, and I didn't get anything. I don't like superlatives. No. 
So Annie, though, maybe she did like superlatives. I don't know. But she was really, really smart. And she received a $160,000 scholarship to get her undergraduate degree in cell developmental biology from the University of Rochester in upstate New York. I don't even know what that means. But that's a very, very specific degree. The biology of cell development. It sounds like one that would be like, you might go into epidemiology or something when you get older. But damn, that just imagine your freshman orientation, your counselor's like, all right, like, what majors are you looking at? We have psychology, sociology, and you're like, um, I'm thinking like cell developmental biology. Oh, yep, right here on the list. There you go. I feel like right under American literature, 1863 to 1864, the male authors, not the female, but it's okay. There weren't many female authors then because, you know, sexism, that's, that's the major. I feel like if you pick this, you know what it is and you absolutely want to do it. I mean, yeah, I would hope so. When she was at the University of Rochester, she met and fell in love with Jonathan Wadowski. So, in addition to her amazing academic success, she and Jonathan were engaged to be married on September 13th, 2009. While Annie was at Yale, she studied pharmacology and monitored the effects of different medicines on mice in the campus labs. On September 8th, there was security footage that captured her entering the building at about 10 a.m., and this was the last time that she was ever seen. Of the 70-odd cameras surrounding the building, and attached to the garage, none of them showed her leaving that day or the next. So when she didn't come home later that night, her roommate, who also happened to be one of her best friends, not only was she already a little bit worried because Annie never called her, and that in itself was weird, but Annie never came home. So her roommate reported her missing. Her pocketbook and her cell phone were later found at the lab, but Annie wasn't there. Police, though, they did not immediately think that they were investigating a homicide because, again, Annie's day at this point, it's five days away, and so their initial thought was maybe she decided she didn't want to move forward with the nuptials, maybe she left town, maybe she got cold feet. But by all accounts of Annie's family and her friends, She was this friendly, smart 24-year-old that was really excited about her upcoming wedding. So rumors of her being this runaway, that, you know, no, that wasn't her. And so then it flipped into police and her family and her friends being really concerned about her safety. Well, and she also very much seems like the kind of person who would be more like type A, that I feel like if she was having cold feet and stuff, it Running away wouldn't be the option, being like, we're going to push back the wedding. Or straight up being like, I don't we're get canceling married. the wedding. Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't see her just running away. Her fiancé Jonathan came in from New York and her family from California. And her disappearance became a top story on national news. There were dozens of reporters and TV trucks that were swarming the campus the street outside her apartment, and following every single move that the police made. New Haven police, state police, and the FBI joined the search for Annie. Immediately, 
they turned to the research center where she had last been seen, and they went to the building's electronic video video surveillance. This is when we see her getting into the uh, the lab at about 10 a.m. on the 8th, and then her electronic key card log for that day showed that her card was used to get into the lab at 10.11. When they looked through all of the footage and it never showed Annie leaving the building, investigators began an all-out search inside the research center, and they started interviewing her co-workers and any of the other workers in the lab who may have seen her. Rachel Roth, who was one of Annie's co-workers, she told Yale University police officer Sabrina Wood that she had seen a box of wipes that had some blood spatter on it. This box was located on a steel push cart in the last room that Annie had entered. And Rachel also mentioned that she saw Raymond Clark, who was a lab technician, and he worked at the lab in a custodial function. She saw him move the box and turn it around before the FBI came into the room so the blood was facing the other way and not like your direct line of sight. Additionally, as investigators searched for Annie in the lab, Ray was seen cleaning the floor drain with steel wool and cleaner. Even though it didn't look dirty, it was already clean. And then Yale Police Sergeant Jay Jones also saw Ray scrubbing the floor under the sink near the drain. Also another area that didn't really look dirty in the first place. Oh, I do not trust him. By September 10th, the FBI had collected a list of evidence, which included this box of wipes that had the blood on it, an extra large lab coat with red stains from a recycling bin, and there was also some video footage that showed Clark wearing a similar lab coat on September 8th. They did tests, and they showed that Annie's DNA was on the box of wipes and on the lab coat. And scientists also detected an unknown male's DNA on the lab coat collar and cuffs. Also on September 10th, Ray came forward with information about Annie. He told Yale police officer Jennifer Garcia that he saw Annie leave the building at about 12.45 in the afternoon, which was 15 minutes before he left the building, and it was right before a fire alarm went off. He said he reported to work on September 8th at 7 a.m., and at about 10.30, Ray said he saw Annie dressed in a brown skirt and a yellow lab coat doing work in the lab. But between 12.30 and 12.45 that afternoon, Ray told police that Annie left the lab and that she was carrying a notebook and two bags of mouse food. The thing is, though, there were 70-some-odd cameras. Not a single one captures her leaving. Yeah, that... I mean, dude, dude suspect. But that's a dumb thing. They could be like, oh, you did? Where? Exactly. And also during the interview, police asked him about all these scratches he had on his face and his left bicep. And he told them the injuries came from one of his cats. Which... As cat owners, we know is could totally happen, but yeah, that's like a really shitty excuse. These interviews were also enough to convince the investigators to take a closer look at Ray. They applied for search and seizure warrants to get mouth swabs, body hair, fingerprints, and fingernail clippings from Ray so they could compare his DNA to some of the evidence that was found at the scene. Then a couple days later on September 12th, Evidence was discovered above a hallway drop ceiling outside of the lab, 
police found a blood-stained rubber glove and a sock. In the ceiling? Yeah, like in the drop ceiling, which I guess it could be like a one of those things that you push up and you put them in there, or like just a little area where it's kind of tucked in. I think that's what a drop ceiling is, is the ones that are just the... um They're like squares. Yeah, the like square, the like almost cardboardy type yeah. tiles that you just... And you just push it up and like get up in the air ducts if you want to, I guess. Yeah, because it's, it's dropped quite a bit below the roof, so you can have access to all the everything up there. Yes. I imagine that would be drop ceiling. So they found the sock and the glove up there in the ceiling. And then they also found a blood-covered work boot labeled Ray C. A blue hospital scrub that was similar to the shirt that Ray had been seen wearing in video surveillance, like when he walked into the video. Because that was another thing. Ray got to work wearing one thing and left work wearing something else. Investigators also found blood stains in lab rooms that someone attempted to clean. So it was at this point that they officially labeled the lab a crime scene, even though they still had no body yet. Wow. Yeah, he is terrible at hiding evidence. He's literally like, oh, my driver's license got blood on it. Let me leave it here. There's also this note that she wrote while I was murdering her that says I did it. I'm going to put it behind this trash can. Like, dude. Yeah, there's, he's just like disposing of things like in the trash can. And like, I mean, I guess putting things in the ceiling, maybe initially to him, he thought that was a good idea. But I feel like that seems so obvious. I'm like, did you see that on TV? Like, of course, they're going to check there. Yeah. Even if it was like, when they're looking full on missing persons, I feel like they would check there as a like, well, I don't know, maybe she heard a noise and went up into the ceiling and she's stuck or i don't know that'd be weird but like i feel like that is a place you would search pretty soon yeah and they did on september 13th a very foul odor that was emanating from a lower level locker room got the intention of an investigator and it smelled like a decomposing body oh they brought cadaver dogs inside the building And at 5 p.m., when Annie should have been walking down the aisle at her wedding, because this was the day that was supposed to be her wedding day, her decomposing body was found stuffed upside down in a wall behind a utility panel in the basement. Her body was so smashed up into the wall that you couldn't recognize her. She was wearing surgical gloves with her left thumb exposed, Blood was smeared behind the wall, and insulation was used to attempt to conceal the body. Also in the wall, detectives found three key items. A green ink pen, which they had already determined that Annie and Ray had used this pen to sign in, had both of their DNA on it. A blood-stained lab coat, and a sock similar to the one that they found in the hallway drop ceiling. So they found the other sock. The state medical examiner determined that Annie died by strangulation, and it would later be revealed that she had a broken jaw and a broken collarbone, injuries that the medical examiner said happened while she was still alive. Her bra had been pushed up and her panties were pulled down to her ankles. 
detectives also found semen on a panty liner and other areas of her body. She did have other broken bones from being shoved into the wall and um, her killer had to twist and and make her fit. But she also had significant Mm -hmm. injuries that happened before she was dead. Oh my God. So as you can tell, like investigators were already honing in on Ray. And so they further examined his movements in the building on September 8th. And they discovered that his key card activity was substantially higher in comparison to his prior use. So he was doing a lot more in and out all around. And on September 15th, police searched his Middleton apartment and took samples from him in an effort to obtain his DNA. Police got the match that they needed to make an arrest. On the green ink pen, investigators found a bloodstain that contained Annie's DNA. And they found Ray's DNA on the pin cap. A stain on the sock found above the ceiling tile contains a mixture of both Ray's and Annie's DNA. Ray actually didn't attend Yale, but he was a university employee and was known to be pretty hard on the students who left the lab dirty because it made more work for him. And on September 17th, Ray was arrested and charged with first degree murder. So one thing that you really think about in this case is is how quickly security became a concern on campus once they found out that ray was the one that did this and once he was charged you know the campus had to respond to this because this was an extremely secure building and it's a university employee exactly so yale now does routine criminal background checks on new employees But Ray, who was hired before this policy was put in place, he had no prior criminal act, like criminal activity or record. Mm -hmm. So that wouldn't have flagged anything. But later, his high school girlfriend told Good Morning America that she had to call the police when she broke up with him. She said she wanted out of the relationship and that he could get angry pretty often. She said that he would frighten her. He would get physical. And for two weeks after their breakup, She was escorted from the school to her car. How is that not in any of his records? I mean, like, I guess, yeah, he hasn't been, he wasn't arrested for stalking or anything. But I feel like if someone has to have basically like a police escort for their safety, you should add a footnote to the dude's, I don't know, profile. There was a 2003 police report on the incident And his ex-girlfriend told police that Ray had forced her to have sex with him, but she declined to press charges. So that could be why there's nothing on record. She didn't press charges. There were also other people that offered conflicting descriptions of Ray's behavior. Some of his former co-workers and neighbors told reporters that he was controlling and volatile, while others described him as really pleasant and friendly. So... To their knowledge, his personnel record at Yale contained no disciplinary action or other indication of anything out of the ordinary. So it's like, this is one of the horrifying things that we can't sit here and blame security because they had it. And they had checks and like he had no record and he did this anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's it's another case like too often where the only person to blame is the killer. Exactly. 
Raymond Clark would eventually plead guilty to murder in exchange for a 44-year prison sentence. He was also found guilty of attempt to commit sexual assault. And while we know Ray killed Annie, we don't know how it happened. We don't know why it happened. There's never been a true motive that was ever admitted by Ray. We don't know why he did what he did. He never said. He never said. And there's no record of what happened. If, you know, he planned this out or if something happened in the lab that set him off. We don't know what happened. But Raymond Clark killed Annie Lay and stuffed her body in the wall. Fuck. And it's so disturbing. There's something to me about hiding a body in a place like in the insulation, like in the wall. I think there are definitely times where you're going to get caught. Like in this case, they did smell her decomposing body. But I've also read lots of articles, horrifying articles, of bodies being found in walls when like a house is being reconstructed. And it's like, oh my god, there was this one I read about this woman had been missing for like 28 years, and they found her inside the wall in her home after she had like obviously passed and her husband had passed and she'd been murdered. She was like all tied up and everything. Her husband killed her. Jesus. But I mean, think about John Wayne Gacy, who, I I mean, when we were talking about this topic, that was the first case that came to mind, obviously. Yeah. And, I mean, yes, when the police officers went into the house, they could smell, ooh, something doesn't smell right. But not to a point of, like, oh my god, there's decomposing bodies in here everywhere. Right. And so, even though there were dozens and dozens. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's not always one that... It's going to be found because of the smell, but it also, in a way, is one of those where it's such a, like, out of sight, out of mind kind of hiding place, because in, you know, a well-traveled lab like this, that's not a, how you'd phrase it, but in a place with lots of different people coming and going and stuff, like, a decomposing body is going to be found, and not very long. Right. So it, it's it is going to be like, found. Yeah, it's hidden in a wall and, like, very much out of sight, and they're not going to find it by going room to room and doing a typical search, but it's a really shitty job of, like, hiding, hiding. I almost feel like with the way he hid her and hid, um, like, the bloodstained evidence, he must have had the idea of, like, within a day or two after trying to disappear and being too under the microscope under the magnifying glass like to having too much of the eye on him too early on or earlier on than he thought because i can't imagine unless he's just really fucking dumb you know being like i can hide you know these bloodstained socks up here i can hide her here and that's it that's over and done with well, and the fact that this building was so highly secured, they're using key cars, there's cameras everywhere, tracking people entering and exiting. Of course, he's going to be a suspect. He was in there at the exact same time and him just saying he saw her leave and there's no evidence to that. I'm like, okay, we d- no. like, why should we believe you? Well, and I'm also wondering, there's so many cameras. How are there none of him 
putting evidence up into the ceiling or carrying her body downstairs. I mean, I'm assuming he probably transported her in some kind of bag or something because I cannot imagine. Oh, there's just no cameras in the hallways or stairwells that's gonna are gonna see him like dragging her. Yeah. But even still, I feel like if they're like, ah, oh, the lab is a murder scene. Well, we have him on camera walking in and then however many minutes later walking out with this large, heavy bag. I mean, I don't know. Well, and I will say there is part of the affidavit that is redacted and it does have to do with the discovery of her body. So we don't have all the information. It's not public. And maybe parts of that are what's in it. But that is the murder of Annie Lay. Shit. I mean, I know I did that case and there are certain parts I remembered. I mean, I remembered that Annie was murdered at a lab in Gale. That was about it. With how many cases we've done, I understand you not remembering it. Because you did this for a murder mini, so it wasn't as in-depth. Yeah. But I'm I'm glad you were able to do it for a full case. And Me too. bring her justice and more attention yeah so tyler what case did you pick i'm really scared to find where your what part of the building your body was hidden in not your body oh oh my god <laughs> i keep doing that wow I, I like for some reason assign possession of you to your cases and i apologize um i'm horrified to find out where the victim in your case where their body was hidden well, my body is currently at my desk right now. That's where I am. And you should be terrified of my case because it is horrifying. My case is the Cleveland Strangler, Anthony Sowell. I know this is one I should know more about than I actually do. It's one you might have heard about. I I know My Favorite Murder did it in one of their earlier episodes. Uh, in doing my research, I guess Sword and Scale has done it. I think a lot of other true crime podcasts have, uh, but it took us to episode 124, so. And here we go. It's a doozy. So my sources, I used his page on Murderpedia, as well as his page on Wikipedia. I also used an article from the True Crime Library, and then an article from Vice that was written by the staff. So, Anthony Sowell, he was born August 19th of 1959. He grew up in East Cleveland, and he was one of seven children born to Claudia Harrison. But also, there were seven other children that grew up in the house that were Anthony's sister's kids, and she passed away. So, her mom was raising her own kids as well as her grandchildren. Seven grandchildren. Yeah, 14 kids in this house. That's a full house. And according to his niece, Leona Davis, Claudia subjected them to a lot of horrible physical and sexual abuse while her own children watched. There was one incident where Claudia forced her to strip naked in front of the other kids and then whipped her with electrical cords until she was bleeding. Anthony Sowell himself he began raping his niece when she was about 10 years old and it happened almost daily for more than two years oh my god 
And she also said that the other men that lived in the house would also rape her. So this was just happening to her? Um, she was the one who gave these the statements and said it. There is no part of me that thinks it was isolated only to her. Right. Unfortunately, if something like that is going on, it's probably happening to a lot more people in the home than we'd like to think. In 1989, Melvette Sockwell, she was a woman, she was three months pregnant, and she'd gone over to Anthony Sowell's home voluntarily. At this point, he was like, grown-ass adult, he's not living at home anymore. She'd gone over to his house, and when she tried to leave, he bound her hands and feet with a tie and a belt, and then he gagged her with a rag. She told police that he choked her real hard, and she knew that because her body began tingling from, like, lack of oxygen, and she thought she was going to die. After she was able to escape, Sowell was charged with kidnapping, rape, and attempted rape, and he pled guilty to attempted rape, and got 15 years in prison. So he was released in 2005. Knowing that you're still at the beginning of your case, that obviously was not enough time. I don't know how he only got 15 years for that. This is so messed up. I'm so frustrated right now. And I'm like, I'm hurting for all of these victims. And I don't know what's going to happen next, but go, go on. Tell me, tell me what I mean, happens the, next. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this is the intro to my case. But I think he got 15 years because he pled guilty to attempted rape. So I don't think uh, they went forward with the charges of kidnapping and rape as well. Right. But once he was released, he started working as like a factory worker until 2007, when uh, he either quit or was fired. Not sure, but he began collecting like unemployment at that time in 2007. His neighbors said he had he was earning a living from selling scrap metal. So that was he was just this guy in the neighborhood, kind of weird, owned a house, and was selling selling scrap metal. He also had the reputation there was a horrible smell that was coming from his house. And, like, neighbors complained of the smell. Like, it was it was a thing. The neighborhood smelled like, like rotting meat. Oh, no. I don't like where this is headed. Well, he also lived next to a store called Ray's Sausage Shop. It was like a butcher. They made sausage. And so anytime the smell of rotting flesh or meat was complained about... They were always the one looked into because the smell is coming from this area. Obviously, it's this butcher place. I have heard of this case, and that is my trigger, my memory trigger, which, God, that's convenient for him. Like, no. Oh, yeah, because as I'm sure y'all can tell right now, it was not coming from Ray's Sausage Shop. But every time they got a complaint, they were like, oh, my God, we're not smelling it. But, like, shit, we work here. I, get, I mean, we're used to it. And would, like, deep clean. And their place was fucking immaculate. Also, it's literally, like, a butcher and meat shop. So, already, like, OSHA and, like, the FDA and shit would be on their ass if there was any kind of health risk of, like, oh, 
yep, they made all these sausages and just then let them rot. Which one, what kind of store is going to do that? Right. That's wasting inventory. Yeah. You're not going to, no. But they, I mean, these complaints kept coming in. And so they're, it's probably the cleanest sausage shop in the city. Right. They're like, no, we're extremely clean. Like there is not a speck of dirt on the floor. But the smell didn't ever go away. It's because it's not the sausage shop. Yeah. So Lori Frazier, she was the niece to the mayor of Cleveland at the time. She began a relationship with Sowell just a little bit after he'd been released from prison. They started dating. She moved into his house. And she claimed that she also smelled this just really horrible smell in the house. But Sowell told her, like, yeah, it's this, it's the sausage shop next door. Like, it's fucking horrible. She's like, damn, that fucking sucks. But also, I am unnerved. And also just other things that he was about and who he was as a person. She was like, you know what? Smelly house monster guy. I think I'm not going to live here. And I think I'm going to break up with you. So she moved out. Which, okay, I 100% get because you move in somewhere and it smells real bad. Like, number one, I I feel like there had to be some conversations there that were like, do we really need to live here? Like, why haven't you moved? If it smells bad all the time, why do you still live here? Slash, if she's got all these other red flags that are going up, she's like, um, sorry, change my mind. This isn't going to work. Yeah. Well, and he's also at this time, like, I don't know if it was when they were dating or after they broke up, but he's like on dating websites and stuff. And I say dating very loosely. They're, he's targeting like he wants basically a slave that he's going to be their master to. And I get that is some people's kinks. I'm not here to kink shame you. I'm not going to yuck your yum. Uh, but <laughs> Brittany's horrified at that statement. Um, no, I, but someone I, with I get what you mean, but I was not expecting you to say that. I mean, you know, most of the time you're talking about food, but we, you know, fetishes can be part of that. Um, but with his history, and uh, he spent 15 years in jail after attacking and holding a woman hostage and raping her, and now he's like, I want to be a master to a slave. Like, nope, no, nope, no, nope, nope. That's no. That's not a fetish. That is criminal. You're just wanting to continue to sexually assault and rape people, but like not go to jail this time. Right. So now we move forward to September of 2009. Okay, that's when my case happened too. Uh, yeah. Uh, I noticed that when you were saying yours, I'm like, hmm, same time. And... We'll quickly realize how big my case is. I'm positive that at the time, the top news stories were probably your case and mine. How do we always have some type of weird interlacing connection? Who can never be sure? So, September of 2009, Sowell invites Latundra Billups to his house for a drink. Well, on September 22nd of 09, she went to the police. Because of what happened to her at the house. She said that after a few drinks, he became very angry. 
He then started hitting her and choking her, and then he raped her when she passed out. Then, on October 29th, and I don't know why it took a month, but it did. But on October 29th, police arrived at his home. They had a warrant to arrest him for the rape, but he wasn't home. But they had this warrant, so they entered the house. Good, I'm glad they went ahead and went in. When they went in, they were met with just the most horrific scene. One of my sources mentioned that there were two bodies of women in the living room. I don't know if the living room was on the first floor of the house or not, but the bodies of two women were found buried in a shallow grave in the basement of the house, and then four other women were found in the third floor of the house in crawl spaces, and then investigators started digging in the backyard, because there was some overturned earth, and they were like, oh my god, what are we going to find? And in the backyard, they found three more bodies, and then the partial remains of a fourth body. Back in the house, they also found a human skull in a bucket, and all in total, the body count was 11. They truly walked into a horror movie. I mean, were these yeah. were these women known missing? Many of them were. Many of them had been reported missing. Some of them were known missing but hadn't been reported. And I'll get into that. But one of the things that I'm that that's bouncing through my head, one of the many things, is this woman that he was dating when she like moved in with him and realized like yo there's a really funky smell also you're like really you're putting off some really negative weird vibes were there bodies in as obvious places like there are when the police entered i mean it must have been the ones hidden more so in like the crawl space and stuff i'm thinking so yeah god and then he just ran out of places to hide and just started leaving them out yeah this dude is a fucking monster. This is like literally Texas Chainsaw Massacre level all the bodies in the house. Oh, a thousand percent. And can you imagine once all of this is being known, all of the people that have been complaining about the smell and knowing it, and I mean, even those that are blaming the meat shop, realizing what they've been smelling for all this time, and how long... They've basically been reporting this, and it's continued. I bet that meat shop went out of business because they were next to it. Who would want to go there? Just the memories of what was next door. Uh, I'm sure. Oh my god. So, Like, when you smell something horrible, you want it to be gone. Never in a million, million years do you want it to end up being decomposing bodies. Yeah. Most of the victims had been killed by manual strangulation, and others were gagged, or they also had ligatures around their bodies when they were discovered. Sowell also had at least three rape victims that had survived. And they were still in the house? They were not in the house. They'd escaped. Oh. But all three never reported the attacks because of different personal reasons or their prior drug history. So they didn't, because, they didn't feel safe. No, because a lot of them were led to his property because he'd invited them to smoke crack with them. And so their thought was, 
I can't go to the police to report this monster because that's also admitting that I'm doing these illegal drugs and I don't want to get arrested for that. I mean, it's something we hear all the time with uh, people in sex work that are victims of a lot of horrible things, but don't go to police because when they do, they're arrested for being sex workers. And I mean, again, people who use drugs that can't go to the police because of this, because they're going to be arrested for using crack. And I wish there was a just flat out. I mean, can we just fucking get behind decriminalizing drugs and instead focusing on those that are dealing or trafficking it and decriminalizing sex work and focusing on those that are involved in human trafficking and rape and shit because the amount of people that are victims to horrible crimes that cannot go to the police for fear of being charged for these victimless crimes and i know when talking about like drug abuse and stuff like as far as victimless i mean that can be murky but let's be fucking real when i think of a drug that victimizes those around the person who has an addiction or an abuse to it it's alcohol it is a hundred percent alcohol and yet no that's the legal one i know well and i feel like there should be some blanket law that is if you are a victim and you're coming to report something you've been victimized for other illegal things that are involved should not like you should not be arrested for like oh i went to this place to buy meth now if after the fact that you've gone to police and then you get caught again buying meth then yeah that's a different situation like i can see you getting charged for that but the fact that people feel like they cannot go and report things i understand that there's a lot of deeper things as to why you wouldn't report something but if your root issue is the fear of being arrested yourself that's not okay that shouldn't be a thing you should not be allowed to arrest someone for being a sex worker when they're trying to let you know that they've discovered a sex trafficking circle exactly i mean i there needs to be a a blanket protection system because i mean let's be real there is if you're rich i know if if you have a shit ton of money because you can a thousand percent how many celebrities and famous people have you heard of that overdose or get caught with drugs and stuff it's not a thing i know and yet how many people are lower income that are scared to say well yeah i went over to this guy's house to buy crack but he raped me but i can't go to police to say that because they're gonna hear oh i was buying crack and then and i admitted to that yep yeah no there needs to be a full-on fucking blanket protection no i'm not saying you can go to the police and be like look i was murdering this person and i saw this dude murdering other people like no but when it comes to victimless crimes yes. like sex work or drug use or things like that, 
no, there should not be the fear of going to jail to report a monster. And yet that's how the fucking justice system is. Well, and the thing is, we should all be held to the same standards. Money shouldn't be an issue. Like, I, this is why I don't, I don't really like the bail system. There are so many things that we talk oh, about no. the justice system that are fucked up. And it's like, same, same people. They could be in jail for possession of cocaine. And if you have a family that has enough money to bail you out, you're good. If you don't, you'd be stuck in prison for years awaiting your oh, trial. Yeah. And like, this is, this is not something that is like a one-off case here and there. Y'all, this is happening everywhere, all over our country. I mean, I'm not even going to get into how much like the war on drugs is so fucked up and it's so racially motivated because that's... Oh, it it's entirely racially motivated. Entirely. I mean, it, if you literally just look at it at crack, which if you dig a little deeper, the reason it is something that affects a lot more black and Hispanic communities is because of the government pushing and selling it to make money to sell weapons and create weapons. Like it's a, it's it's not even a conspiracy theory. It's literally declassified in there, but crack and cocaine, which essentially are the exact same drug. I think crack is just formulated a little differently so you can smoke it, but it's the same thing. And yet, because of the war on drugs, the penalties and prison time and fines associated with crack possession are so much higher than cocaine. And it's because cocaine is a white people drug. Crack is a drug that is seen as one that's used by people of color. And it's just one of so many ways where the war on drugs is literally just a, it's built to be a war on people of color. Yeah. And I feel like we could do an entire episode on the injustice of the war on drugs. And again, I believe we mentioned this many episodes ago, but if you haven't watched the documentary 13th on Netflix, do yourself a favor, go watch that. It's a couple hours. It's difficult, but There's a lot of information that is in that documentary that I was unaware of. And there are a lot of connections that I was able to make while watching that that I hadn't made before. And I know we've gotten a bit on a tangent, but it's still it's very fitting because when people don't feel like they can go to the police when they feel unsafe, then what are our police doing? If they're not there as a resource to make everyone feel safe, what are they doing? What's the point? Well, and you also just look at other countries that have decriminalized drug use, and you see so many less people that are being affected by addiction. You see so many less people dying, because just think about the risks of uh, high schoolers right? and someone drinking too much at a high school party and having alcohol poisoning. Oh, it's illegal. We can't call the police. They're going to know. And how many more people die? I know. And it's, I mean, it's the same for adults and drugs that are illegal. Someone has something laced with fentanyl and they OD 
well, you could call the ambulance, but people are scared, too. I know. And so in countries where it's decriminalized, people don't have that fear and people live and people get the help they need to treat addiction. But here, addiction is a crime, not a health issue. Something to get treated. Yeah. It, ooh, we could absolutely have a full-on episode. Um, I know. But yeah, but because of that, and because of the stigma around drugs, at least three women were raped by this man and did not feel safe going to the police. And the thing is, if they would have felt safe going to the police, how many of these victims could have been saved? Yeah, exactly. And that's also, that's three that admitted and spoke about this after the trial and after everything how many more were his victims and even still did not feel safe yeah so he had this pattern he would lure women to his house with the promise of crack cocaine he would lure them to the house with other just other promises i mean he was known in the area to be like a drug user and he would also target people that would be easily victimized, runaways or homeless women, and people that he could easily target. But two days after police went into his home and found his victims' bodies, he was finally located and arrested. At the time of his arrest, Sal was 50 years old. He'd been living at this house for four years, so it was where he moved into pretty much right after he got out of jail or out of prison. And when he was arrested, he was held on a $5 million bond. And his trial, it originally was set for like June of 2010, but there were a lot of delays because of just how much evidence there was in the case and how much all the lawyers had to go through and just how much was fucking going on that it was delayed about a year to June 6th of 2011. So hop into the past a little bit from that. November 5th of 2009, that was when the first two of his victims were identified. So only a little bit longer than a week after they, the police found the bodies, the first two victims were identified. The first victim identified was Tanya Carmichael. She was a 53-year-old black woman who disappeared more than a year before. Oh, jeez. She was one of the bodies buried in his backyard, and it, she was one that had been strangled to death. And they identified her through DNA evidence. Her mom had reported her missing in December of 2008. The second victim identified was Talatia Fortson. She was a 31-year-old black woman who disappeared five months earlier. And although she'd been missing since June of 2009... Her mom didn't report her missing until she'd heard news coverage of all these bodies found in this house. On November 8th, three more of the bodies were identified. Crystal Dozier, who was a 38-year-old black woman who'd gone missing in May of 2007, so more than two years previously. She was a mom of seven kids, and she lived in the area. Her family had reported her missing very soon after she'd gone missing to the Cleveland Police Department. And because this, like, wasn't the first time she'd gone missing, the police didn't really investigate it much. They were like, oh, well, 
I mean, she's kind of run away or disappeared before and drugs, so... Oh, let's... Nope, she's not under this desk. Nope, she's not around the corner. Guess we'll never know. I am getting so many John Wayne Gacy vibes right now that it is chilling. It It's like the same types of crimes, yet instead of young men and boys, it's women. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't targeting young vulnerable boys he was targeting vulnerable black women in cleveland yes but it's very john wayne gacy like like all of it all of it the the near misses the hiding the bodies in the home the all of this all of this tricking people into your life by seeming like this like great guy i don't know the fact that a case like this has happened more than once and i'm sure this is these are not the only two which is even more horrifying. But the fact that something like this could happen more than once, I just have a hard time understanding that. Yeah. And again, it's no one's fault, but these killers, but just the fact that there are so many people who are that sick. Evil. Evil. Like, literally like the spawn of Satan. So because the police weren't really putting in the effort to search for Crystal... Her family took it upon themselves to post flyers around the city and call hospitals. And they did that for months and years, continuing to call hospitals to see, well, maybe Crystal did run away, but something happened and she's in a hospital and unidentified. And they kept that hope and kept searching for her. The next victim identified was Amelda Amy Hunter. She was a 47-year-old black woman, and she was a beautician in the area. She was a mother of three, and she didn't live, like, in the area of Cleveland where he did, but she went there very frequently. She also had an injury that meant she couldn't use one of her arms. And again, her family didn't report her missing until after police had begun removing bodies from the house. The third victim that was identified here was Michelle Mason. She was a 45-year-old black woman who was last seen in October of 2008, so almost a year prior. Or, well, a little over a year after, I guess. She'd lived in the area where she was murdered and where her body was found. And according to records... Her family had notified police that she was missing, and police did a full investigation, but they didn't find anything until they found her body. With this, they had five victims identified, and they had, they had at least six unidentified. Yeah, they're not even halfway with the identification. So... Police began looking at missing persons records going back all the way to June 2005, which is when Sowell was released from prison. Because remember, this all happened in maximum four years from when he was out of jail. At least the bodies that were found at this house were. Who knows what he did before he went to prison for the rape in 1989. I know, and that's exactly what I was thinking, is that we don't know if these are his only victims. Him immediately doing this as soon as he got out makes me think he was picking it back up. You know, not that this was his new idea. 
He was just continuing. Exactly. I mean, the East Cleveland police, they started reopening several cold cases from the late 80s and looking at these victims that they were never able to find a murderer who had been murdered by strangulation or had a similar M.O. that stopped around 1989 when he went to jail. And also the FBI is looking and gathering information to see if he was able to be linked to other unsolved cases in different cities, not just Cleveland, that he'd once lived or visited. This is exactly like we were talking about in the last episode. How, God, why do all these men keep strangling women? Because MOs are blurring together. And it's one of those, it's that, Are we just trying to shoehorn in these victims to this murderer who matches the profile? Or is he the one that actually did it? Or is there someone else out there that we haven't caught? It's so unfair. Like, I know that sounds so juvenile to say, but it's so unfair. But it's, I mean, it's not juvenile to say because it's real. It is real. It is. And it, it's the fucking patriarchy. And it's, it's the reason why... Being a strong-ass fucking feminist is not a goal or something to aspire to be. That's the fucking expectation. If I ever was dating someone or had a friend, they were like, I'm not a feminist. That's an immediate, oh, no, we're out. Because if you do not think that there needs to be such a fight and so much action taken to have equality among all the different genders and that if you can't see or refuse to accept that yeah things are different now than in the 50s great that doesn't mean we need to stop if you're i don't know for people who know sports or whatever if if your sports team is zero to 30 points and oh they get up to eight to 30 points that doesn't mean you stop yeah progress has been made great more progress needs to happen like how how is that so hard to understand i think that was an oddly good analogy something that is seen as so masculine being used as an analogy for equality for all i i mean being a feminist and fem feminism to me is the floor not the ceiling. Yes. That that's like to me saying I'm a feminist is like saying I agree lynching is bad. Yeah, I assumed that. That's basic human decency. Do you want a cookie? Do you want an a-, a participation award? Hashtag oh my god, a feminist ally. Yeah, that's everyone. That should be everyone. The fact that we are still fighting so much for equality in 2020 is one of this it's so sickening to me it is one of the most depressing things and thoughts that we as a society have not we're still like this is still a thing oh it just makes me so mad Mm -hmm. it makes me so mad because we take one step forward and three steps back and that is our history which means we're behind We're so far behind. 
Oh yeah, we don't just have progress to make, we have catching up to do. Thankfully, eventually all 11 victims whose bodies were recovered at his house were identified. Oh my god, really? Unfortunately, I feel like that is rare. It is. I mean, it really is, and was one of the reasons why I was like, oh, I need to call this out. Yeah. His victims were Crystal Dozier, Tashana Culver, LaShonda Long, Michelle Mason, Tanya Carmichael, Nancy Cobbs, Imelda Hunter, Talasha Fortson, Janice Webb, Kim Yvette Smith, and Diane Turner was his most recent victim. And she was murdered in September of 2009. So right before the discovery. The same, exactly. The same month that LaTundra Billups went to the police to report her rape that started them, I guess, getting a warrant that took a month to investigate. And again, that's just all the victims that were buried at his house. Who knows if he was also disposing of victims' bodies elsewhere. And what if they weren't found? Like, still haven't been found. I mean, yeah, what if there are victims that he did also bury in his backyard, but it'd been a little longer, so that wasn't, like, recently turned over earth, and so they didn't dig there. Right. Someone who has 11 victims easily has 20 victims. Like, it's... When you get into those scary high numbers the more there could actually be. So, Sowell was charged with 11 counts of aggravated murder, 74 counts of rape, kidnapping, tampering with evidence, and also abuse of a corpse. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but he later changed his plea to just not guilty. On July 22nd of 2011, he was convicted on all but two of the counts against him, including the 11 murders of women whose bodies were found at his house. And on August 10th, jurors recommended the death penalty for him. So since September 14th of 2011, he's been on death row in Chilicote Correctional Institute. But that's not fully where my case ends. So on November of 2011, his lawyers filed a notice of appeal with the Supreme Court of Ohio. And... A stay of execution was filed and granted. I oftentimes think about lawyers that defend murderers. And me personally, I would much rather be a lawyer defending a murderer to get them a stay of execution. Because, you know, I don't I don't agree with the death penalty. So that is something I could 100% get behind. Understanding the horrific things that this person has done, but not thinking they deserve death, I could fight that. But Mm -hmm. I can just, God, being a defense lawyer, when you are literally sitting there and you're like, I fucking know he did it, but we've got like a lawyer client. Confidentiality. Confidentiality. And, you know, how, how am I going to play this? Like, maybe we all know we did it, but how am I going to play this to get him off? Those types of things, number one, again, it's a thing with our justice system that I'm like, hmm, does that really make sense? I just, I don't know. I And I don't really know where I'm going with this comment, but it's just one of those things that I think about that I just cannot comprehend. 
how you do that and not necessarily justify your actions because you are doing your job. You're doing a service. You're doing something that is necessary, but fuck, that's hard. Yeah. I mean, like, as a lawyer, yes, technically you do get to choose your cases. Yeah. But it's just another version of justice is blind. And as much as it can be, like, hard to think and hard to say, I mean, even the people that have fully done these horrible, horrible crimes, they still do deserve the same due process. They do. As everyone. As people that are charged and innocent. As people that have never gone to court in their lives. I mean, due process covers everyone and should cover everyone. Let's be real. In a lot of cases, it full-on fucking doesn't. No, but it should. But it should. I know. And, I mean, lawyers, as much as when you drill down to some specific cases where it's like, how can you defend this monster? Once you kind of eagle eye out, I mean, that idea of every single person, regardless of income, race, regardless of who they are, ideally, again, because our justice system is fucked up, this isn't how it always works, but... Regardless of who you are, you are still, you still get the due process that everyone deserves. And lawyers are part of upholding that. As good or bad as the job is. In the same way of doctors that treat the school shooter. The person who just murdered all these kids who gets shot themselves. They're still taken to the hospital and treated with the same care as any patient as they should be. And I see lawyers on that same level of upholding the system and the principle of what it should stand for. I agree with what you're saying. But when you also pin in the fact that that lawyer is standing there doing their job, due process, making sure that this person gets a fair trial... Does that also mean they have to be saying in their closing argument, you should not be convicting this person of these crimes because of X, Y, and Z, when they know this person has gotten a fair trial. I mean, as much as we can say fair, this person has gotten a fair trial, yet I am still going to stand up here and say, don't convict them. They're not guilty. I mean, yes, because the way the justice system is and should be is there isn't one person that decides you're guilty your lawyer doesn't get to decide you're guilty even if you've admitted it in the same way that like when we have cases where someone gives a confession well cool but if there's like not evidence like thanks for your anecdote and i mean i i get it in a lot of cases especially when you look at specific cases and a person-by-person basis which you should it's fucked because there there are cases when this guy raped this woman and you have a lawyer standing up there and being like, well, here's the mitigating factors. Like, yes, we know he did, but God, he's such a good student and a swimmer. And then that rapist gets off with a slap on the wrist. His Fuck name. you, Brock Turner. Yeah, I was going to say, say his name. And that's, that's fucked. Because... That same level of defense is not given to the mother in Tennessee who, to get her daughter to go to a better school, 
registered herself as living in another county and is now in jail for longer than this rapist ever will be. Like, I mean, the justice system is fucked on all levels, but I mean, representation and defense should be given to those guilty or not guilty. I don't know. It's it, it's a whole fucked thing. It's a fucked soup. It is. And I will say, listeners, if you've ever wondered why, you know, I have this passion for justice and true crime, why I never made that my career, it's it. this is why. It's because I am not able... I couldn't do it. I'm not able to separate myself emotionally from these types of things. I'm not able... I would not be able to represent the person that I know is guilty. Or that I feel so strongly in my heart is guilty. And this is why I didn't I didn't choose this path. And that's why I I look at helping our justice system. You know, I want to be someone that helps in, in a volunteer way. In a speaking out way. Not someone who's actually in the courtroom. As much as I know, you said something earlier that kind of was like, not a punch in the gut. But it was more of like, oh, representation. Just that everyone deserves representation and being on the inside of a courtroom and being a part of the system is one of the ways to make change. But I just know I'm not able to do it by the the rules of the system. Yeah. So I did not try to make this about me. I, I just, we don't oftentimes talk about the lawyers that are involved in, in all of these cases and all of the pressures and all of the things that they're going through. Because it's just another, it's it's another part. I feel like, shit, you could just have a, an entire podcast based on lawyers and how they handled cases. And I they actually think- I mean, there are so that many. That would be really interesting, honestly. I think there are absolutely some out there. Listeners, if y'all know of any, like, ping us, let us know. Ping us. We're not at work right now. Also, we're not 50. Email us. Ping. You know, the moment I started wow. using the word- No, no, no. I use it too. I use it too. But, like, the moment I started using the phrase, just ping me, I died a little bit inside. That's fair. Anywho, my case. I'm jumping back in. So, his lawyers, they appealed to have his conviction and death sentence overturned. So, on December 8th of 2016, after going to, like, appeal trial and all of that stuff, the Ohio Supreme Court rejected an appeal from him, affirming his aggravated murder convictions and the death sentence. In May of 2017, he again appealed this case, this time to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that they were not going to review his appeal. So it gets shot down, like back down to the lower court. And then again, in April 2018, the Ohio Supreme Court denied a request of him to reopen his appeal. And the most recent update is from May of 2020, so just earlier this year. The state of Ohio's 8th District Appellate Court denied his appeal. So he is still currently on death row. And that is my case, the Cleveland Strangler, Anthony Sowell. That was one of the most horrifying cases we've done. Yes, yes it was. This, in and of itself, is a horrifying episode. It really is. I feel like there's a difference in the mentality of hiding a body versus disposing of a body. Because obviously, when you Mm -hmm. dispose of a body, part of the time, there is a hiding aspect, but it's not the same. It's more of like, 
let me bury this body in this forest where no one goes. So they're not going to be found. Yeah. Versus I need to hide this body. I'm going to put them in the wall or under the house. It's almost like, I don't know. I feel like it takes a different kind of monster to go from like, I'm going to like hide and dispose of this evidence uh, to like try to make my innocence last as long as possible to not caring or not giving a fuck so much that you're going to take a victim's body and put them right there and hide them. It's like, I don't know. There's almost like less weight you put on the actual act of murdering someone that you're like, I'm gonna leave in my fucking house versus like, I'm going to hide them in the woods where they'll never be found. And like, bury this part away physically and emotionally i don't know maybe maybe i'm trailing off on different trails no i totally get what you're saying it's almost like so we know serial killers and i'm talking about your case in particular we know serial killers keep tokens well it seems like anthony was keeping his victims bodies as his tokens like he wanted them near he wanted to know what he did he wanted to be surrounded by what he did and his victims. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like, are you at least ashamed and horrified of what you've done? No. Or do you want to live around that? They want to celebrate it. Ex- yeah. Like, with, with themselves. I mean. It, it's just, oh god, it's fucked up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of the things that makes cases like John Wayne Gacy or Jeffrey Dahmer so chilling and take it to such a different level yes keeping victims bodies around you and in your home pieces of them all of them what whatever it like that becomes a part of your life your daily life like they're there it's not something no you know what here's what it is it's not something they that they try to like forget it's something that they want to be constantly reminded of Exactly. Dude, I think this is one of the most intense episodes we've done. Far and away. There are just, I mean, like we were just saying, there is something to say about hiding a body but keeping it near that is so creepy and eerie and scary that it's really hard to wrap your mind around it. I mean, it's just another level of like dehumanization. Yeah. Of seeing a victim and their body as like an object. Yeah, like a prize. Rather than a person. I know. God. Well, listeners, if you are as horrified and puzzled and just kind of taken aback, but you appreciated the conversations we had and things we talked through, and you like our podcast, hop on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. Let us know what you think. If you know of some other like really hard-hitting cases that you'd like us to look into and, and talk about, ones that maybe not many people know about, let us know. Or if you just want to let us know what you think, hop on over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review us, and we, we'll, we absolutely read those. Absolutely. And make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Follow us to those things. 
Instagram's fun. It's it's the only one I use. I know I say that so many times, but I'm a, I'm a visual bitch. Oh my god, hashtag Tyler visual bitch. <laughs> but I I mean yeah, make sure to follow us on social media. That's where you get to see the wines that we're drinking when we're like, oh my god, that label's so X and Y. You actually get to see it. Yeah, that's that's true. That's great. We do always talk about um, the label so much, and our listeners can't see them. Sorry, guys. I bet that's annoying as fuck. I mean, I don't know. If you follow uh, us on social media, it's not, because then you can be like, oh, what the hell were they talking about? But yeah, make sure to like and follow us there. Also, check out our website. Check out our merch store. If you're like, fuck, the Blood and Wine label, I want that on a t-shirt, or a hat, or a poster. It's all there. God, what if we had a beach towel? I don't think our merch store like supports that, but I would scream. I want a beach and then towel. Buy it and then lay on it. I want a beach towel. Oh God. Let's try to find that. Spread shirt. Beach towel us. I like it. Well, with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.